During 2021, Scotland's Climate Assembly took place, which culminated in a report of recommendations which went to the Scottish Government. Uh, The Scottish Government responded to that report and a final weekend was added to the Climate Assembly, which took place on the weekend of the 4th of February. Members had an opportunity to discuss the Scottish Government's response and also to take part in a Q&A session with Patrick Harvey, MSP, and Richard Lockhead, MSP. This is the audio of that discussion. If you want to see the videos from the weekend, they're all available on climateassembly.scot website. So we have Patrick Harvey. Patrick, would you like to just sort of say a couple of words to start with? Uh, thanks very much. Good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to to speak to you. It's particularly exciting for me to to be part of this process because, uh, as you probably know, the the Climate Citizens Assembly resulted from changes that, that my party colleagues argued for in the last uh, climate legislation that went through the Scottish Parliament. So we're really delighted that it's taken place. Uh, and I, I had never dreamed when we debated those amendments that I would be one of the ministers responding on behalf of the, the Scottish government. Um, I think regardless of that, though, regardless of which parties in power, I would never have expected this process to uh, lead to some kind of tech box exercise where everybody says, yes, everything the government's doing is brilliant, or that the government says, yes, we'll just do everything that's recommended, because part of the purpose of this deliberative participative process is to break open new political space uh, that allows governments to do things differently in the future. It would have been completely wrong to expect a citizens assembly not to put pressure on us uh, or to demand more and to demand difficult things. So I really welcome the fact that there's challenge involved in the the assembly's recommendations uh, and that that will continue to challenge uh, myself and other members of the Scottish government Uh, to do more, to do faster, and to be braver. Thanks, Patrick. And we also have uh, Richard Lockhead as well, another of our ministers from the Scottish Government. So I invite you just to say a couple of words to start with as well. Yeah, thank you very much. And it's a real pleasure to join you all today. And uh, as Patrick was saying, to take part in this kind of engagement uh, with the Assembly. I'm also equally surprised that Patrick's sitting here as a minister, having, <laughs> having discussed the amendment several years ago. So, <laughs> but it's great we're all working together because this is such a huge issue and um, everyone's got something to contribute. Um, and and I, I absolutely agree with Patrick. Um, I want to thank everyone for their commitment in this process. It's a fantastic process. It's breaking new grounds and it's something that's going to stay with us forevermore in terms of the parliament, the way in which we engage with the the public and and representatives of the public. Um, And, you know, your job is also to hold our feet to the fire. And uh, as Patrick says, we just have to be honest and upfront about the challenges that are there and uh, accept that we're not getting everything right all the time and that, you know, we we have to listen closely to to the views of the assembly. So I think it's a really important uh, process of, of engagement. And the final point I'll just make is it was really good and heartening to see the Children's Parliament's actions uh, and, and call to actions um, alongside the report as well. So I think that was a really important dimension uh, and something for us that we have to take very, very seriously as well. So I look forward to your uh, your questions. Clearly, every single minister across government is engaged in this agenda, so we'll, we'll do our best to answer your questions as, as much as we can with our own individual uh, responsibilities. And clearly, as Minister for Just Transition, you know, that's a key focus for me in terms of the, the future and how we respond to the climate emergency. The, the members have been sort of working and prioritising up some questions that they, they want to ask. Question for Patrick to start with. Hi, Patrick. As, a, as an assembly, we really don't feel the government has picked up on the urgency of our recommendations. In particular, there is a lack of specific actions, targets and timeframes. What is holding the government back from working to the timeframes we know are needed? Thanks for your question, Ellie. I don't think there is one single answer. Uh, I think the answer is different in different areas. In some cases, what's holding government and political parties back is the political will, the political appetite, not just within the parliamentary or or political bubble, but in public expectations as well. 
transport is a good example of that. You know, I was first elected uh, to, to the Scottish Parliament when we were trying to stop the M74 Northern Extension being built. Five miles of, of urban motorway on concrete stilts uh, for a, a price tag for which we could have had a complete transformation in Glasgow's public transport and walking and cycling infrastructure and still about change from what was spent on that, that motorway project. And yet the public appetite was still that was still being catered to was still about just build more, build more, build more. And now we've finally got a change in political direction on that. Uh, and we've, we've got a, a recognition that what's being called the predict and provide model of just predict future transport demand and build the capacity to meet it. That's got to die. That's gone. That no longer has government support, but it will take time for that change uh, to feed through. If you look, for example, at you know just a really modest thing that we proposed a couple of years ago, workplace parking levies, a way of raising funds for public transport investment, uh, and uh, you know making sure that there's an incentive for people to use public transport where it's available. Well, the Scottish government and the Greens sat down and proposed that and got it into legislation and. Pretty much every other political party thought their best interest was served by campaigning against it, throwing their hands up in the air and saying war on motorists. So we need to change public expectations and public appetite uh, if we're going to change what is politically possible. There are other areas where it's not about the public appetite, it's about some of the technical stuff. So buildings, heating buildings, that's that's within my remit. And I the part of the reason I wanted that job is because it's really difficult going from a few thousand installations of zero emission heating systems a year, which we where we're at now, to hundreds of thousands a year, is going to take time to build up the supply chain, to and, and make sure that we're uh, training people up to have the skills to do that, uh, and changing the, the electrical grid so that we've, you know, we've got an electrical grid that can cope with that increased demand. Yeah. So technical reasons uh, sometimes why you need to set a, a particular time frame. There are political reasons sometimes, uh, but I think the most important thing is that we're we're focused on on cracking on and doing the job as quickly as possible. Uh, and I, I do think that the the appetite for that urgency is there now. Hi, both. We think it would be essential for the citizens' assembly to meet up annually to track progress and hold the government to account. How do you envisage government collaboration with the citizens' assembly and children's parliament in the future? Uh, yeah, thanks for, for that question. And I think we found the process of citizens' assemblies and your particular work very, very powerful. And it's absolutely something we're committed to working with you going forward. And um, it is a sign of how things have changed. And the previous answer, Patrick, was referring to how things um, ha have moved on and changed. And, and that is, I could go on about that for a long time. Um, so the advent of citizens' assemblies is something we very much support. And I know that whilst there's not specific decisions been taken yet about your assembly and how that will work in the future, we are committed to having citizens' assemblies every year. And also there has been a report commissioned about how all that should work and how the process should work going forward. So I'm pretty confident that we will have an ongoing relationship with your assembly and that there will be ongoing engagements. And of course, with the Children's Parliament as well, because that's a, such an important dimension, particularly in subjects like climate change. So I think there's some detail to be worked out, but I think we're committed to it. And obviously we very much welcome your views about how that should continue. And you've just made the comment that you do want it to continue. So that's something we'll have to decide upon about how that actually works in practice. But it's something we're very keen on. And whilst I can't give you an answer on specific decisions because that's not been taken yet, the whole concept of Citizens Assembly now is now part of the of the landscape of participatory uh, dialogue and, and you know working uh, that format. Hi, so our group's question is, how can we get a government to commit to ongoing work to tackle the climate emergency that lasts longer than one term? Particularly, how can we make sure that initiatives, scopes and funding are not changed by newly elected governments? It's a brilliant question, Lewis, because it's the balance between transforming our economy and our country. We face a whole range of agendas with the fact that we have five-year parliamentary terms and suddenly, you know, in theory, a government can only commit to the five years parliamentary term and they could be undone by successive governments. Saying that, 
you know, I've been an MSP since 1999, since day one of the Scottish Parliament. And the issues we are debating now and occupied by, it's night and day compared to the early years of the Parliament. You know, it really is, it's, it's difficult to express just how different things are now to the early years of the Parliament. And if you look at the fact we have now climate change legislation, and that's legislation, so unless a party was to come into power and remove that legislation, which I honestly think is quite unlikely, that long-term commitment is there and ministers have a, a legislative duty to report to Parliament and the country on progress and achieving their targets. So there's a legislative kind of um, safeguard. Uh, there's also the fact, I think there's political consensus that, you know, climate change is an absolute priority in a climate emergency. Yes, there's different political parties with different agendas, different pace of action, different commitments. And, you know, that's absolutely the case. So uh, you, know, you can't pretend we're all exactly the same place there. Um, but I think there, there is that. There's also the the advent of, you know, or, or, or the development of external democratic accountability, whether it's, the, you know, this assembly or various other uh, ways in which now Parliament has been held to account the politicians. And I think that's really important. And the final point I would make is that, you know, the, the Scottish Government at the moment, since, uh, you know, we are working together to produce the, um, the economic transformation plan for the next 10 years. So that's beyond one parliamentary term. And there'll be commitments in that, and net zero is at the heart of that 10-year transformation. So it'll actually be published in the next few weeks. Uh, so that's a 10-year plan for the economic transformation of Scotland. So that's you know beyond the five-year parliamentary term, and the commitments, the financial commitments that go with that, will be in place for that 10 years, if not beyond. But there's a very fundamental change taking place in Scottish politics and um, Scottish governments at the moment. So I think you know the investments going into place cannot easily be undone. So I think we're talking about long-term commitments. As, as Richard said, it's a, it's a hugely important question. And I, I think it's, it's a really deep question. Uh, we, I, I think we're the last generation that has even a chance of demonstrating that a democracy is capable of making the kind of changes that are required. Uh, and I have days when I doubt that. I still, I still have days when I doubt whether uh, a democratic process. You know, if you look at the way what are nominally democracies around the world uh, have seen the rise of populism, of climate denial, you know, even decades after the science has been crystal clear on the fundamental questions, uh, democracy can be still subverted and co-opted uh, by those who will will just throw that out the window and, and pursue politics based on their own short-term interests or the, the short-term interests of their their pals and their cronies or, or whoever. So I don't know, honestly, long term, whether a democracy is capable of doing this. I'm absolutely determined that we have to make every possible effort uh, to prove that it is possible. But yeah, I no one, nothing can give you a guarantee that Scotland might not elect a government that was uh, going down the direction of Trump or Bolsonaro or, or whoever else in, in another five or 10 years time. In fact, the only way to prevent that from happening is to make sure that we are changing the public expectation. No piece of legislation can do that. No government plan or, or commitment can do that because governments can change. Changing public expectations and the public attitude for the better is the only way to guarantee that we won't get more regressive climate denial or populist governments in future. And that, I come back to where I started in the opening remarks, that's one of the reasons why participative and deliberative processes are really important. Bringing people into political discussion in a, in, with a depth of scrutiny that doesn't take place at election times, but people who are not bringing a, a political axe to grind, they're not fighting for their own team. Because, you know, obviously I, I want you to like my party, all politicians want you to like our parties, but we, we operate in these party teams and that's always going to be an imperfect process. And so adding to the representative democracy with the participative and deliberative democratic processes is one way of bringing this conversation and this challenge out of the political bubble uh, and into a, a public space uh, where it, 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 can, it can change what becomes politically possible. So it, none of it gets guarantees. There are no guarantees with this, but uh, I think participative democracy is one of the most important ways that we can prevent the risk uh, of regressive governments coming in in the future.
my question is, is the Scottish Government involved in impactful collaboration in the public sector and or the private sectors involve the sharing and bringing together of best, best practice and innovation locally, nationally, internationally to be more effective tackle the climate emergency? Yeah, I mean, we can probably rattle off some examples. Uh, I think it's worth saying that we we should always continue to, to challenge ourselves to do better. And, and it is, again, part of bringing more people into the conversation. The international aspect is obviously one that uh, we've just had a, a big role, not as the host government, it was the UK government that hosted uh, technically the, uh, the, the COP conference here, but as, as the, the place where it happened, Scotland and Glasgow had a really important voice. And I think we demonstrated that even without being an independent country, we can have our voices heard on the world stage. And I think right around COP, I constantly heard of people recognising what Scotland's doing and uh, recognising that we that we can be heard, even though we're, we're a, a devolved country instead of an independent one at the moment. So on stuff like uh, the zero carbon building side, again, my own remit, uh, we've been working very, very well with international partners to share good practice, not just governments, but people in the in the supply chain as well, looking at the, the heat and building side, uh, sharing best practice and understanding, for example, from some of the countries that have similar climates to us, uh, but have done more to improve their, their building stock and have got more use of, of things like heat networks, which, you know, exist a wee bit in Scotland, but we need to do a lot more of that. And most people are not familiar with them, uh, not just users, uh, you know, people not used to, to, to seeing them in their own homes, but most installers, most builders and contractors are not used to, uh, to putting these things in as well. So we need to share a lot of good practice there. Um, there's more that we can do. Uh, we've we started talking with the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, uh, and we haven't yet got to the point where the Scottish government has agreed to join uh, that alliance. Uh, but we're exploring becoming a uh, what's called a friend of it. Uh, in order to fully join, uh, you have to be committed to taking regulatory actions on oil and gas extraction that are actually beyond the Scottish government powers. Those set at UK level, so we wouldn't be able to fully join yet. But even just having that conversation, even just sitting around the table and maintaining links with those kind of countries is recognising the world is on a path away from fossil fuels. We're doing it decades later than we should have done it, but we have to do it and we have to do it as fast as we can. So there is, there's a lot of work happening to share that good practice between governments, between countries, and also with uh, you know others who, who are not government actors, but you know, academics, NGOs, experts, and, the, and a lot of the businesses that need to change as well. I think what the question really is about is if, if I'm trying to build a product and China's got a key component to it, I need, rather than me set it up myself, takes me a couple of years investment, but if I can just ship that important key part from another country, bring it in, and then I've got that product ready to develop instantly, so as in your carbon capture things that are we looking at other countries to see what, what are they doing how does it match with ours and how can we put that out internationally quicker than the current uh, time it's taken us to, to work out new technologies like hydrogen and like that um, it's a good question um kevin about the commercial side of things and how to get technology in terms of collaboration there's, there's huge technological collaboration that scotland is at the heart of particularly through our universities and uh, research and development side of things uh, and scotland's got an amazing reputation for, for international collaboration it's been as you as you know it's been slightly um dented by brexit which has caused some significant problems but um, i think there is a lot of international collaboration led by universities and researchers looking at technological solutions to many of the issues we're speaking about and internally within scotland's a lot of collaboration as well because one of the benefits of you know being a country of only 5.4 million people is that everyone knows each other and gets around the table and there's lots of collaboration your initial questions of the public sector and there's um that's something thankfully we are good at in scotland there's collaboration amongst all our public sector leaders so we can go in the same direction over net zero so i think that'll pay a lot of dividends well, good good morning to you both if the if the constraints of devolution uh, were not there how much more imagination and ambition uh, would you apply to addressing the climate emergency and poverty? E enormous quantities of creativity and imagination would be applied if we had the powers um, of a, a, an independent country 
There are so many issues we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis on the net zero agenda or, or particularly the poverty agenda where you scratch the surface and many of the constraints we face clearly are because of our lack of powers and, and, and decisions taken at UK level. Um, so whether that's a universal um, income uh, in terms of tackling poverty or uh, you know many of the issues that were in the government's response to your report where we did mention the fact we didn't have powers over certain fiscal waivers or taxation options uh, clearly we would be able to do things uh, and you know i think the whole issue over green taxes is uh, a huge opportunity we had more fiscal responsibility and taxation powers we could do so much more and i don't necessarily have all the answers but it would give us the opportunity to be creative with uh, environmental taxes so I think that's one big area we would make a big difference. I, you know, I think we could go on for a long time talking about all the powers we could use if we had these options. But you can even look at the energy crisis we face just now, just to give one quick example, it's very topical, which is causing fuel poverty uh, and you know extreme levels of fuel poverty if it's not addressed properly in terms of lifting the energy cap and the 54% the increase in energy bills and so on. And you know we can't cut VAT on that and the UK government taking a decision not to cut VAT, we, we would obviously look at that if we were able to do so. And the the other issues around the energy debate just now, we just can't influence as much as we'd like to. Uh, so we, you know, there's a whole range of issues we could do, we could be a lot more creative with. Can I come in there and just say, you know, there's a lot more you could do under existing powers. You have the the power of land reform and with in, included within land reform is the possibility of introducing annual ground rent or another form of taxation like that which has the power actually to transform lives and that's something that you could do just now no i was just, i was just responding to Graham's point about what would we do if we had more powers and how more creative would we be but yeah yeah absolutely right i mean we, we have to hold our hands up and just say yes you've given us a lot of feedback through your report about more things we could do and you know but i'm sure patrick wants to mention uh, the, the the land reform issue yeah, the, I, I'm someone who wants to remove the constraints of devolution, but I, I have never believed that we should use that as an excuse for not acting uh, really creatively within uh, devolved powers where we can. And taxation is one of the areas where it's been really frustrating. We don't have the power to set up new national taxes for the most part, but we do. And we always have since 99 had the power to change local taxes. So if you want to introduce a, a change to taxation uh, and you can't do it because it's not devolved, you can do it locally. You can create that local tax power uh, and, and make change that way. And we've been able to do that since 99. And again, we haven't had the political will. Parliament after parliament after parliament has been deadlocked between the political parties about local tax reform. That's something that we have as a commitment in the, the new cooperation agreement, which is, again, to have a citizens' assembly, to cut through the party political okay. deadlock uh, and reform local taxation. But I just want to say one other thing. Removing the constraints of, of devolution and having more powers, uh, I've never pretended that it's a solution to every problem. In many ways, it's about taking on new problems and facing up to new problems. Aviation is a good example. Uh, and again, that's an area where the... The cooperation agreement excludes it because we haven't got agreement on aviation policy. Uh, you know, if we if we had control of aviation policy, if that was a devolved power, uh, we would need to make decisions about actually can we cope with a return to pre-pandemic levels of aviation. The research is absolutely clear. We can't meet our climate targets without demand reduction on aviation. And most of the political landscape has not accepted that yet. So if that was devolved, we would be faced with the responsibility to face up to a new problem. It wouldn't just be about giving us new solutions. Yes, I would thank the ministers for giving up uh, some of their valuable Sunday morning time to uh, talk to us and be so straightforward. Much of what I have to say now really ties into the last speaker, Graham. Uh, you'll notice in our general statement, there's a real emphasis on justness and fairness. But it wasn't within the assembly's remit to consider the costs of what we recommended. Hmm. Now, we all know that these things are going to be expensive and it's going to be taxation one way or another. So the public will pay. Now, rightly, uh, Minister Harvey has talked about the devolved powers and taxation being creative with it. The concern that we have is this justness and fairness that the taxation must hit 
mainly the polluter pays principle should be guided here. The people who are most able and most responsible for the climate change problem. So what we're really asking for is a just and fair uh, system of taxation. Now, within your devolved powers, there are, I'll, I'll give you a specific one, which really ties in with Ms. Minister Harvey's goal. Uh, you do have the aggregate levy within your remit. Now, the aggregate levy could help you put taxation onto the extremely damaging cement and concrete production and encourage more timber production. Now, that's one. Also on uh, aviation, uh, you mentioned what you can't do, but your air departure tax does give you a possibility to tackle that. So there are two issues, and I'd like to see how you can address those in a fair way that won't hit the poorest people the hardest. Yeah. Thanks, John. I think sort of the bigger questions that some members were asking around that is that you know, how how will the changes that need to happen really be able to be funded in that kind of fair way, that just transition, especially given you know some of the other things that are going on in terms of cost of living increase. Um, so I don't know, Richard, if you want to start, and then obviously Patrick, if you. Like yeah, I mean, I'll give you, you know, a viewpoint from a just transition perspective, and I'm sure Patrick will want to come in maybe about the, the, the use of these levies, etc. But so, firstly, John, you know, we absolutely agree, and that's why my post exists. I'm the first just transition minister in the Scottish government, and that's because we absolutely want to prioritise the principle of making sure the transition is just in that we learn lessons in the past and don't repeat them. Therefore, people are kept in good jobs and good green jobs going forward. We don't just dump people onto the unemployment queue because we're making such a, a rapid transformation of our economy. And what happened when we shut the, the coal sector back in the 80s or, or, or the, the Thatcher administration did that. So jobs and secondly, ensuring that no part of our population or no one has a disproportionate burden from the, the journey we're on and that they have to pay a disproportionate cost. And as you say, John, that means we've got to be super careful about ensuring that low-income families and vulnerable people don't end up paying more because of, of uh, the transformation of, of the economy. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing just now the whole debate around fuel poverty as a result of rocketing energy prices. So the Scottish Government's viewpoint is that we are devoting, as you can see, a lot of time trying to ensure that we can protect vulnerable people and low-income families with the, the the abilities we do have to address that we don't have uh, as, as we just discussed in the previous question all the taxation powers or fiscal levers would like to do that properly so we've got to use what limited resources we do have to try and protect people because of wanting to adhere to the just transition principles but going forward clearly there's massive questions to be answered and massive challenges and you know we don't have all the answers yet about how to avoid in, you know how to avoid a disproportionate burden on people within our population as we move forward and uh, we have to look at what's going to cost people and deal with that and find the answers and um, but in terms of the general principle we absolutely agree with you um thank you for giving us the opportunity to put our questions to you um we've been really been really inspired by the work of the children's parliament alongside what we've been doing uh, what do you think of their proposal, which was one of their top three, of a national annual tree planting day? And why has this not been mentioned or adopted in your response? We very clearly need lots more tree planting. We need to, to be increasing forestry cover, uh, not just uh, to make sure that we have healthy, diverse uh, ecosystems in Scotland, but also, like was referred to in the, in the last uh, question, we need to be using Scottish timber as well to replace uh, things like concrete in construction so both for being productive uh, into the economy but also being productive ecologically we need a lot more tree planting i don't think there's anything wrong with having a a proposal debated in parliament for a national tree planting day i think it'd be a nice uh, way of celebrating what we're doing the thing is that i think the, the reason why we were a little bit hesitant about just saying this is the solution is that what we need to do has to be every day it has to be much more than you would be able to achieve uh, just with a, a, a tree planting day. So if we turned it into something that was an annual celebration of what we're doing uh, and getting more people involved in seeing tree planting happening in their own urban communities as well as uh, across much more rural Scotland, I think there's a lot to be said for that. 
so um, I, I'm, I'm sorry if you feel it hasn't been kind of fully endorsed in the in the response, uh, but I think what what we're looking at is a, a very clear commitment to a, a big expansion of forestry in Scotland uh, and also uh, tree planting within urban environments as well to uh, to make sure that we're, we're creating green spaces for people to enjoy close to home. I think that's where I saw the value in having something like a national uh, annual tree planting day is actually the raising awareness. It's not so much that you would achieve what you need to achieve in that one single day, but it raises the awareness of everybody as to um, what should be being done. That I'll certainly true. take on to, to have a conversation with, with colleagues about that uh, who'd be responsible for it and, uh, and see if we can find a way to take it forward. Good morning, Ministers. Um, our question is, what are the specific barriers to a fully integrated public transport system throughout Scotland and beyond, including rail, bus and sea, and what do you propose to do to overcome those barriers? Well, we are, you know, very keen and I agree with you that, you know, we want to create an integrated transport system in Scotland and we want to make transport more affordable as well. We have quite a complicated landscape, you know, that's been built up over many decades in Scotland in terms of transport. I think we have, I don't know, is it 270 to 300 different, you know, bus operators and, and operators of transport in Scotland. And that uh, challenge of coordinating that, because I know that, you know, there's been a big debate over smart cars and so on, which um, we have begun to develop in Scotland. And we've had the first smart car that's got different modes of transport on it. But there are these challenges we've inherited with our transport infrastructure and transport systems in Scotland will that um, have been quite challenging. So we perhaps haven't made as much progress as we'd like. But now, of course, things are going to change quite rapidly. And, you know, we've got ScotRail coming into being operated publicly uh, in a matter of uh, months. We have just seen the rollouts uh, launched this month of the free transports or free buses for under 22 years of age. So we are making a lot of progress in making transport more accessible and more affordable or free in some circumstances, obviously. Um, and I think that's going to open up a lot more opportunities. So we do have a lot of exciting things happening. But that's some of the challenges we've faced in the past. It's basically the infrastructure we've inherited, the privatisation that's taken place in the past decades has left us with quite a mishmash of companies and private operators. So the challenges have been there in terms of making it a lot more integrated uh, than you know than what we have just now. Hi, thanks for coming to, to talk to us today. Um, we wanted us to point out that we struggle to find a single example within the Scottish Government's response of a significant change that you have brought about as a result of our recommendations. The response document read basically as a catalogue of policies that were already in train or uh, reasons as to why you couldn't do what we asked or couldn't do things within the timescales. The Assembly's work, as you know, it represents thousands of man hours committed by people who want to see changes. And we felt that the document in response should have been framed differently. We didn't want the list of what we were already doing. We wanted a list of things that you're now going to do differently because of what we've said. So we had a raft of recommendations around the retrofit of existing homes, and the decarbonisation of domestic heating um, to reach net zero by 2030 from this area. Um, emissions from buildings in Scotland are over 8 million tonnes of CO2 per year, largely from gas and oil for heating, around 70% of that's residential. We felt that there was very little substance in your response to these recommendations. And in particular, we noted that your time scale for improvement is 2045, not 2030. We realise retrofitting the existing buildings um, is expected to cost a lot of money, around £33 billion. We wanted to hear more about your plans on this. Um, we realise you've got this heating building strategy, and that mentions that you're about to set up a new green heat finance task force to find out where this money is going to come from. So we want to hear more about where this money is going to come from and what milestones you've set 
in your plans to address the retrofitting and the decarbonisation of heating. Uh, what are you doing differently now? What are you doing faster because of the extreme urgency we've put to you? And I request that you work towards net zero by 2030 rather than 2045. Quite rightly, there's a lot in the question uh, from Suzanne, because this is one of the biggest challenges. One of the reasons I wanted to take on the job of zero carbon buildings as well as active travel is that these are uh, these are two areas. One uh, where there's a huge and very, very difficult job of work to be done in Scotland and one on, on the transport side where that's probably where the, the biggest failings have been to, to make reductions in the past. Uh, and I, I am not going to try and pretend uh, that you are going to be completely satisfied. I'm not completely satisfied either with the, the scale and pace of what we're able to achieve. Uh, and if we had begun this work 20 or 30 years ago, uh, you know, then we, we might be in a position of saying we, we're, we're doing it fast enough. Uh, we have to acknowledge that we're starting this too late uh, and, you know, that, that it is incredibly difficult. Look, I'm, I'm going to give you an example of my my flat here. I'm speaking to you from second floor of a tenement flat uh, in uh, on a, a main road in Glasgow. So we've got uh, a social landlord that acts as the factor. They've still got social tenants in some of the flats here, owner occupiers. Uh, I, I don't think in my close, but elsewhere in the in the tenement building, there'll be private landlords as well. And on the ground floor, you've got shops and commercial properties. And so you've got fragmented ownership fragmented tenure uh, and different uses as well so they fall under different regulations and the idea that the that you're just going to uh, require each individual property uh, to meet a standard in a short space of time isn't going to work you need to treat that whole building as one uh, and probably use heat networks rather than individual heat pumps uh, in in a property like this so the challenge of getting buildings like tenements ready for that, and a lot of them are, you know, 100 plus years old, and so you only find out what state they're in once you start ripping them apart to do the energy efficiency work. This is immense. This is immense. I want to go as fast as we possibly can. If I sat here and told you that I think the job can be completed in less than a decade across the whole of Scotland, I would be lying. Okay. So we have a, a heat and building strategy that is accelerating progress. I know that you don't just want to be told that everything's brilliant, and I'm, I'm trying not to do that, but it is going about twice as fast as the UK government thinks is possible uh, across the whole of the UK. Uh, it needs to engage with the fact that, as, as we all know, price of energy is hugely important. And if we want this to be a fair, a just transition, as well as a fast one, we need to, to try and not have this push even more people into fuel poverty. We need to try and do it in a way that reduces people's heating bills. But the regulation of those prices, we, we can't control. Uh, we can't even control the extent to which the energy companies have to put their profits into energy efficiency, because again, that's regulated at UK level as well. We're trying to work as fast as we can uh, and, you know, the, the example I gave at the start of zero emission heating systems, things like heat pumps and heat networks, we've got a few thousand a year going into homes in Scotland right now. And I, I'm hearing pressure from some of the other parties saying, why don't you immediately pass regulations that require new build all to have zero emissions heating? Well, if, if those few thousand a year, while we're scaling up to hundreds of thousands a year, if those few thousand a year were going into new build, they would be displacing the newest and most efficient gas boilers, when actually we need to be ripping out the oldest and least efficient gas boilers first. That's the way to get the fastest carbon reductions from the capacity that we've got uh, within this system as we grow it. Uh, and we also need to work with the supply chain. You know, They need the confidence to know that they can train people up to install these systems uh, and it's a, you know, the, the construction industry has has a lot of, of um, inertia. You know, they don't change easily. They don't change rapidly. And what they need is the confidence of knowing we're going to pass regulations that will require this for every building in Scotland at trigger points like change of use, change of tenure, change of occupancy. 
and that's what we've committed to. So in uh, in just a couple of months, you're going to see the first draft regulations coming out and we'll pass those through Parliament as quickly as we can that will place these requirements on all building owners. And it's going to be difficult. Uh, and, and just last point, I know, I know we're, we're going on too long here, but the last point on money uh, is another hugely, hugely complex one. We had the first meeting of that Green Heat Finance Task Force uh, just last week. Uh, and the, the idea of setting these, these, these goals so far in advance is really important to give the confidence that we're going to use things like taxation. We're going to have to make sure that individuals who've got equity, people who are sitting in, in high value homes that they don't have a big mortgage on anymore, we're going to need to release some of that equity. But not everybody's in that position. Not everybody uh, has that. So we need to be targeting that support on the basis of, of low incomes, but also targeting support on the basis of how much wealth people have, not just their incomes. So the, there's, and, and I'll also just loop it back to the land value tax. Land value capture could be a really, really important source of new revenue for investing in the built environment. So you're right, there's a lot more that we need to do. Uh, I'm committed to taking that forward as fast as we can but I'm not going to sit here and, and feel good about giving you false promises and say that it can be done faster than I think is physically possible. I just wanted to just quickly come back. You said you had the first meeting with the Green Heat Finance Task Force last week. Can you tell me one thing, one action plan that has come out of that meeting? Uh, no, because you, you, you don't produce an action plan at the first meeting. I'm, I'm sorry, this was the first chance to get people yeah. around the table. Green Heat Finance Task Force is going to meet for about a year and a half, mm -hmm. and there will be output at the end of that, but there will be output from it all the way through as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I recognise how frustrating this is, and I, I think you're right to put me under pressure on it. My, my job is to try and make it happen as fast as possible, but that doesn't mean that the first meeting gets you to the destination. Hi again, good morning and thank you for both being here. What's your view about how the public and government could work together to maintain clear accountability on the actions taken going forward, such as accessible and clear data on the climate emergency that tracks and reports on your progress regularly? Yeah, thanks, Ashwad. Well, clearly, given you know some of the um, frustrations we've heard about progress not being fast enough and you know I think we all kind of share that frustration and we would love to be able to work, go more faster in a lot of, of these agendas. It really is important that you know that accountability is there and the government's feet is held to the fire. Now clearly the citizens assemblies is one new way in which we're we're um, putting um, a process in place to have that participatory democracy in Scotland. We have as a government a national performance framework which we introduced in 2007, which was, which was innovative. And we do have that in place and it's updated on an annual basis in terms of the indicators of Scotland's progress across um, all our responsibilities, including tackling the climate emergency. And that's a, that's a transparent process as well. Um, I think clearly we also have that legislative commitment uh, and obligation in place, which means we have to report on an annual basis to Parliament, again, in a transparent way about the progress we're making in achieving our targets. And we also have to report to Parliament on what we're doing to make up where we've not achieved our targets, what policies and plans we're putting in place um, to make sure that uh, that's being addressed. So we've got that legislative backstop as well. Um, I do think, though, a final comment would be, as well, that um, we are doing a lot at a grassroots level, and I think we have to do a lot more at a grassroots level. You know, we're, we're creating climate change hubs so that not only do we have a national Scotland-wide citizen assembly, but to each community level, we also have that pressure and accountability being put in place as well. I represent Murray constituency, and Murray had a citizens assembly a few weeks ago, which I had to go and speak to, and I was questioned, and, you know, we, we had a good dialogue there as well. So we need that at a, a grassroots level across Scotland, because it's not just about governments, and it's not just about national parliaments, and, you know, the National Citizens Assembly is very important, but it's not just at the national level, it's about every level of society, so there's accountability there everywhere, and it's also a local government as well as central government, and a village, town and city level, so I think we have to build that up as we go forward. Um, hi Patrick, hi Richard, um, thanks for being here. Um, our group would like to know which of the goals from the Assembly's report would you prioritise? Well, that's always a difficult question, isn't it, trying to pick a priority on so many big issues there. 
I have kind of pet interests, and then I have the big strategic important one. My pet interests are the kind of circular economy issues, which you highlighted, and the single-use plastics. I introduced the plastic bag levy a few years ago when I was environment secretary. And I, I you know, it wasn't as plain sailing. Ironically, today we think it's, we take it for granted. It was something we should have done decades ago. At the time, it wasn't plain sailing. Um, and I do think these kind of policies are really important because they touch everyone in the country. They make everyone think. They make people think about their behaviour as individuals. So I have a I have a, a personal interest in the kind of circular economy um, proposals that you had in your report, and I think they're really important. The big strategic issue for me is the energy area, and that's that's crucial. It's urgent. It's massive, and it's it's also exciting because it can deliver lots of opportunities and benefits for Scotland if we if we change our energy profile quickly and tackle fuel poverty. Um, so the big strategic one's energy, but the 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 one in your report, which I, I have a personal interest in, is the circular economy aspects. Thanks. Um, I mean, in a way, I um, I chose my priorities when uh, the the government picked up the phone and said, "Do you want to talk about forming an agreement and coming into government?" And you know, the priorities that I set for myself were. Uh, the heat and buildings uh, stuff and the, the active travel stuff, those were the things that I was really, really passionate to get involved in and, and start making a difference on. We've talked quite a lot about the heat and building side, so I'll, I'll talk about transport for, for just a moment. I mean, I think using a bike is the, is the most uh, fun and enjoyable way to move about a city, as well as being uh, the healthiest, cheapest and greenest. But I recognise that not everyone can do that. It's not right for every person. It's not right for every journey. But having a, a built environment that is safer and more attractive to walk, wheel and cycle has got so many more benefits than just that direct transport emission. It's about creating more connected neighbourhoods. It's about creating more inclusive neighborhoods uh, places where people want to spend time and feel safe so in in many ways transport is is has been the, the biggest failing in scotland for, for decades where we've seen emissions going up not down uh, and where you know unlike things like energy or waste you know you talk about energy and waste policy and everybody tries to talk about how we reduce the scale of the problem for decades, transport has been seen as a more of kind of policy. Uh, we just want to build you more stuff, build you more stuff, build you more stuff. And that, that in itself reinforces the expectation in the public that that's what politicians ought to be doing. We need to see demand reduction as being one of the ways uh, that we not just achieve those, those climate targets, but also change people's expectations about what it what it's like to move about in, a, in the built environment. And, and, and between places and, and supporting things like local food production and so many more benefits from changing the way that we move about and the amount that we move about. So that's that's one that I'm really, really passionate about, uh, about trying to, trying to do uh, in, in the way that I live my own life as well as the way I do my job. Hi all. Um, so our group asks, firstly, do you believe that our recommendations will have any impact on what the government does as we feel that you are implementing some of these policies anyway? And secondly, can you name a policy that has changed because of our recommendations? Thank you. I think I can name policies that will change because of your recommendations. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that the recommendations have come out uh, and that that's just transformed everything. I've never believed that that's what a citizens assembly does. It's about changing the nature the debate rather than just coming up with a report. If all we wanted was a report with recommendations and we decide which ones we'll do and which ones we don't, we could have commissioned that from academics or from consultants or whoever. The purpose of it being a citizens assembly uh, is to change the nature of the debate and bring more people into that debate. So I think some of the stuff on transport, for example, that I mentioned and some of the challenges that you've made on taxation, I think that will change the debate in Scotland. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that you know it's it's done it overnight, but I think it is a long-term change that's required here, and some of the the recommendations that you've made uh, will be adopted, uh, even if they haven't been yet. Is that in, enough to answer the question? I mean, I, I know it may not satisfy you 100%, but I really want you to go away from this process with confidence that what you've done uh, is going to have lasting impact, not just uh, impact on you know, the, the, the day or the month or even just in the year that the, the report comes out. 
But I just would like to ask both of our our ministers, uh, starting with Richard, if you just have just 30 second final words to the members and then we'll hand over to Patrick. Thank you for this morning. And I just want to assure you as well that your work and your recommendations do make a difference. And there are lots of ministers and cabinet secretaries engaged in many of the issues which you highlighted in your report and recommended uh, uh, action over. And it does make a big difference. And it also gives us confidence. It gives us a bit more of a mandate and an endorsement of some of the big issues we do have to face up to that are difficult decisions. And to have the Citizens' Assembly, um, and dogs barking in the background, of course, uh, but to have the Citizens' Assembly um, endorsing that uh, is really, really impactful and powerful from, our, from, a, from a government's point of view and Parliament's point of view as well. So thank you for all your good work and please continue to hold our feet to the fire and successive governments' feet to the fire. It, uh, it wouldn't have been a Zoom meeting uh, without at least one pet getting involved. Uh, that's a rule, I think. Um, thank you for the work that you've done. Uh, thank you for challenging us and, and pushing us out of our comfort zone, because that's absolutely what's required and will continue to be required, not just with this government, but with every government. Where, where we're at now was never going to be good enough. If we'd started this 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, when vested interests were pumping millions into climate denial and propaganda and building a climate denial conspiracy movement. If we'd started this decades ago, uh, we might just be on track for, for where we need to be. So we are clearly globally, not just in Scotland, we're behind the curve on this. Uh, Scotland, I think, does have determination to act. And that means being pushed out of our comfort zone and having a citizens assembly that changes the nature of the, the 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 political landscape you you change the political landscape by demonstrating what the public engagement is on this uh when politicians very often only see public engagement through kind of right-wing newspapers or you know the the war on motorist rhetoric or all the rest of it so what you've done will help those of us who are trying to change the political response uh not just on a one-off basis but for years to come thank you patrick and look, thank you both very much for being here with us this morning. I think, as you've seen, members have been so working around this, looking at the response from government, really thinking about, well, what do we want to say back? And starting up that sort of two-way conversation between, between government, between ministers, and between the public. So, you know, hopefully something we can keep going for a long time. And again, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Richard.